Hey friends, my name's Stevie Taylor. Welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. My guest today is Steel Turkington. Steel is a drummer, drum restorer, instrument maker, and founder and owner of Kentville Drums. We sat down in his workshop at the uh, foothills of the Blue Mountains, and we talked his early musical upbringings, study at the um, Australian Institute of Music, and how after all that finished, he followed a different path, which has led him to become one of Australia's premier drum restorers and repairers. Um, he has a few stories regarding some of Australia's most famous drummers, and also some guy called Charlie Watts. <laughs> Check it out. Enjoy. Cheers. Well, I think we're rolling. Steel Turkington. Hi, mate. How are you? Good. Welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Oh, sweet as we're at your um your workshop, Karajong. This I've tidied it for you. It Thank looks, you very much. Everything's yeah. absolutely beautiful in here, isn't it? Pristine. <laughs> Pristine. Pristine. So a speck at, of dust anywhere. We're at Karajong, the um, the foothills of the mountains. That's right. Yeah, the yeah. foothills. The foothills of the yeah. mountains. Yeah. Cool. All right, man. Well, let's um, let's roll right back to the start before we start talking about your um, your workshop and Kenfield Drums itself. Um, you're a drummer. I'm a drummer. Yeah. Yep. Um. Did you originally start playing drums or was it other instruments? Uh, when I was a kid, I had piano lessons for a while. Yep. I think when I was maybe seven to nine, something like that. Yep. Learned piano for a bit. And then I think in the first year of high school when I was 11, I started playing drums and got lessons at school. Yep. And yeah, I was in bands at school and in the concert band and stage band and that kind of stuff. And yep. in bands with my mates, same as everyone. Yep. And... Yeah, I didn't. I think when I was at school, I don't know that I was ever really thinking about being a drummer professionally or taking it too seriously. And I left it for quite a while after school, but then returned to it and studied it at uni and okay. um, had some plan to become a successful, busy working muso yep. at one point. Yep. yep. <laughs> As we all do. As we all do. And then I thought, fuck that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do something else. Yeah. No, can I, we, are you um, originally from Sydney? What? Well, uh, sort of. I mean, I was born in I was born in Wollongong, and I lived in Wollongong okay, yep. till I was about three. Yep. Then my family moved to Papua New Guinea. My dad had a had a job there. And he's an engineer, so we moved to Papua New Guinea. And my dad worked there. My mum worked there as a school teacher, and we lived there for a couple of years. But when we moved back to Australia, we moved to back we moved to, to Sydney. Sydney. Yeah, yep. when I was about five or five and a half. Out in the Hills District, Kenthurst. Kenthurst, yeah. 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 Cool. Yeah. Yep. And when you were um, when you started studying drums. Um, what sort of styles were you studying? Were you more of a jazz? When I was studying at, at high school. Uh, at high school, sorry, yeah. Yeah, at high school, I think, well, like, always, until I was, oh, look, really, even now, I don't know why, like, I just never sort of got into music after kind of the early 80s. It's just, there's just nothing that's ever really clicked for me. Right. Original jazz stuff and other original things that my friends are into and stuff, maybe a little bit, but yep. the sort of popular music or, you know, known sort of music that I, I listened to was always 60s and 70s stuff. That's what yeah. I was into when I was at high school and just exclusively nothing else. Yeah. 
Um, That's the good stuff right there. Well, yeah. it, it definitely is. I mean, there's plenty of other good stuff, but when I was a teenager, I didn't believe that to be the case. I, yeah. I thought there's nothing else. This is this is music, this, who, this era. Who were the bands? Uh, I was, like, the biggest, the, the original things that I was really into was, like, The Stones, um, yeah, Hendrix, Fleetwood Mac. Yep. Um, and then I got into things like Allman Brothers, Jethro Tull. Yep. Um, yeah, that kind of stuff, Pink Floyd, prog rock sort of things. Yep. And, um, nothing too sort of obscure when I was a teenager, I think. Um, I think when I was probably either just out of school or just towards the end of school, a mate of mine who was also a muser, he introduced me to, he gave me a CD one day of Fela Kuti of some Afrobeat music. And that was just like, I never heard anything like that before. It was amazing. And yeah, um, yeah so I got, I got quite into Afrobeat then for a long time. I mean, I still listen to that all the time. It's on high rotation on my Spotify. Oh, just, right. It's my default, you know, if you just, you can just get into such a zone with Afrobeat music and every yeah, song can, just goes yeah. for 20 minutes. It's just <laughs> like, it's great yeah. to work to. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that was one of my early kind of influences and I think that was the sort of stuff I was playing in bands with my mates, although there were like mates from school that wanted to play like, you know, Nirvana and Green Day stuff and I was never into it, but I'd play anything just for the sake of playing, you know. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and... Um, when was your, what was your first band? I think my first, look, there was a few little things at high school, like everyone, but the first band I had was, was um, when I was 16 or 17. Um, a mate of mine at school, his guitar teacher um, was this guy that taught out of music school out in um, Rouse Hill. It was quite well known at the time. It was run by this guy called Rory Thomas. and. He was sort of like, I don't know how you'd put it, he was sort of like an Art Blakey kind of figure that would sort of bring up these sort of the up-and-coming, you know, hot jazz guys that he'd find in high schools and stuff, and he'd put together these ensembles. He had this one called The Zoo, and um, I think The Zoo was the name of his big band, but it was all like the gun players that he'd found, you know. Anyway, he had a guitar teacher there that one of my mates learnt from, and that guitar teacher was big into 60s sort of blues and um, prog rock and this kind of stuff. Yep. And he was looking for a drummer. Somehow, I don't know how, but I ended up in this band yep. with this like 35-year-old guy, and I was 16 and a half, and he was like a ridiculous guitarist. And um, another guitarist and bass player who were 26 or 27, and me, like a 16-and-a-half-year-old kid. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and they liked me, and they liked the way I played, and I guess I was just so into that style that I, I sort of fitted the role. And yeah, we were playing heaps of like, you know, early Fleetwood Mac, you know, the sort of like... Um, Peter Green days. Peter Green stuff, yeah. And um, yeah, early sort of Led Zeppelin and heaps of Allman Brothers stuff and I don't know, lots of stuff, but it was it was all that sort of early blues rock sort of and southern rock stuff. Yep. And the band was called Whipping Post, which is a name taken from an Allman Brothers song. Okay. So that was my first band that I, that I rem actually sort of really remember because it was a band that I was into and the music we were playing was like, this is my scene. Yep. But it didn't go anywhere. We just... Went to the rehearsal studios at Wetherill Park yeah, right. every weekend. And <laughs> that LA, was it. Studios? LA Studios. Yeah. 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 Hey, Stu. Yeah, yeah, exactly. How are you, my man? <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and where from there, band wise? I think that all sort of just tailed off. I think okay. when I was in my early 20s, I, my priorities shifted and um, I played a little bit, but yeah, I, I got out of it in a way, I think. And um, I my focus became about travel and yep. I didn't really know what I wanted to do with work and stuff and there was definitely no sort of thought at that time of like oh I want to knuckle down and become a professional muso or yep. you know I want to put together an originals band and see give it a shot that yep. wasn't a, really a thought in my mind yep. but after I had 
sort of worked and traveled a lot through my 20s. Um, then at some point, I think I was 25 or 24, I decided to just see if I could enroll at a music in a music course. So yeah. I did a, well, audition in inverted commas at the Australian Institute of Music, which was a nice place to go to uni, but anybody who's been there will know that the audition process is a bit of a, a bit of a um, formality. There's, oh, right. really? <laughs> as long as you're willing to pay, you can go to the Institute of Music. Oh, is that right? Yeah, definitely. Oh, shit. So, um, uh, but nevertheless, great teachers there and a good course. And yeah, so I did that for three years or so. And, and my, my goal at that time was to yeah, see if I could uh, make a living from being a performer. Right. And yeah. I gigged a bit during that time. Yep. Um, and studied with great teachers there. I've Who were had your teachers? My teacher, my drum teachers were um, uh, Nick Sassir towards towards the end, my last couple of semesters. But for most of the time, it was Toby Hall. Mm-hmm. And um, there's sort of a connection there with how I actually got into restoration because what? while Toby was teaching me, he at one point I think he got some kind of endorsement deal or something with Gretsch and. Until that point, though, he'd been using a really old set of Ludwigs that belonged to Alan Turnbull, who was his teacher. And, you know, Alan's sort of like one of the, the founding fathers of Australian jazz drumming. And I didn't know who Alan Turnbull was at that time. But yep. Toby was like, I've got this old set of Ludwigs I don't need anymore because I've got the Gretsch thing. Are you interested in buying them? So I ended up buying this old Ludwig kit off Toby, but it was like him and Alan had never done anything but play on it. And it was just a mess. Right. <laughs> it was bits missing. It was right. filthy. And yep. so that was like one of the first things I really worked on restoring. Right. And this was still while I was studying to actually be a musician. So right. I think this is where the conflict began. This is where I started to like spend less time practicing and more time tinkering with right. drums and right. trying to fix them. Yeah. So let's sort of, well, let's start heading that way then. So your father's an engineer? Yeah, my father's a civil engineer. Yep. And he's, yeah, he's handy and builds and uh, fixes uh, stuff all the time. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Did you sort of, there was always tools around? There was. And like, I think, um, yeah, I mean, look, to some extent, like growing up, I would help him with projects. And I think when I was a teenager, definitely, like I was often sort of in the workshop, either yep. helping him with something or I just kind of, I can remember going out there in the evenings and you know, spending my time building some little pencil box or yeah. tinkering around trying to yeah, make yeah. something, you know, just fiddling with stuff. And he was always fine with me doing that as long as I put the tools yeah. back. Yeah, I know what you mean, because my, my, I'm an electrical fitter by trade, Yeah, my electric motor rewinder, and my dad had a motor rewinding shop at home. So we'd be out there at night time, he had the family business going, so we'd all be out there. That's kind of how we, I still got into tools as well. You just sort of yeah. become, um, yeah, you just become familiar just, with it. You're that, just handling right. them yeah, all the yeah. time. You start to just learn you what just, stuff does. You and just pick stuff up. And, yeah. And if you're allowed to just have free kind of access to yeah, it. And, I, yeah. and I, that's sort of how I remember it with Dad anyway. It was like it was fine to just go out there and use that stuff. And, I mean, he's not very tidy about where he puts his stuff back. But he's like, yep. he obviously did know where things were. So I had to just make sure stuff went back. But, yeah, so I guess in a way, like, I, I did sort of grow up with that kind of stuff. But yep. Um, um, yeah, the, the first sort of memory I have of really starting to tinker around with fixing drums was when I was, um, when I did work experience in year 10, um, I, I got a couple of weeks at, um, do you remember there used to be a drum shop at West Ride called the, I think it was just called Drum Centre or Drum or Music Centre or something like that. Was it on the, it's on the left? Is he heading into town? Uh, no, it's not too far, on the main drag, not on the far main drag, from the yeah, train yeah. station. Yep. 
anyway, so I did my work experience there for a couple of weeks and Ben Ellingworth was, was working there. Yep. And um, at some point during that two weeks, you know, they were always running out of stuff for me to do. Like yep. It was a classic work experience story. It's like, yeah. oh, just polish that or dust that. <laughs> Again? Set up this thing. Now take it down. Yeah. <laughs> like, make, make it left-handed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like running out of things to get me to do. Because a lot of the time they didn't have that much to do. It wasn't a very busy shop. Yep. Anyway, one day they were like, one of the guys said to me, oh, there's this old kit and it must have been like a piece or percussion plus or just like a nothing kind of kit. But it was missing lots of lugs and it was sort of just a few things were a bit broken and they wanted it to just be functional so they could you know, sell it off for 300 bucks or something. Right, yep. It's just as a student kit. And they had this cool storeroom out the back that was like, you know, little little tow tray things, um, little little parts bins everywhere yep. and yep. full of lugs and rods. And like, I'd never been in a room like that before. Like, yep. it was like being in dad's workshop, but everything in there was to do with drums, drums like yeah, every yeah. single thing. Yeah. I was like, wow, this is cool. So they said, um, but again, it was pretty disorganized. There was stuff all over the ground and some of the parts hadn't been sorted yet, but there was lots of bits in there and they said oh yeah we need to get this kit kind of just set up for sale so can you just like go in there and figure it out and i think they were just sort of kind of just sending me away for the day in right, a way, yeah. you know yeah. like, this will keep him busy yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's just send him into this dark abyss and we won't have to give him anything else to do for the rest of the day and yeah. then like in a couple of hours i just kind of found everything i needed and it, despite the complete disorganized state of the little room yeah, in a couple of hours, I'd sort of found lugs that worked and screwed everything on. And I, but I just remember um, I did this and sort of left the kit. It must have been near the end of the day or something, so there wasn't much discussion about it. But when I came back the next morning, one of the guys that worked there, it wasn't Ben, but it was another guy that worked there. I remember him just sort of pulling me aside and saying, you know, that kit that you put together yesterday, you did a bloody great job of that. Like normally the kids we get in here for work experience, like they're, they're thick as two short planks. Like you, <laughs> that kit, you did a good job. I'm like, yeah. oh, thanks, you know. It's not as though, like, at that moment I was like, oh, I'm going to be a drum repairer yeah, when I yeah. grow up. But it's yeah. like, this is the first sort of memory I have of being in a space that's like a small version of what I have now that was just, like, exclusively for repairing drums. Yep. Um, so, yeah, but obviously there's a lot of years between that moment and when I actually did decide to do that. Right. Uh, and a lot of things sort of leading up to the decision to do that as well, I guess. But Right. Yeah. So, so how did that decision come about then? Well, I think... Um, yeah, so I had been sort of battling, or what would you say, kind of struggling along, um, trying to get into being a working muser. But after after I finished my studies at AIM, at Institute of Music, almost immediately when I graduated, me and um, my partner at the time went on a long world trip for a couple of years, okay. just backpacking around the world. Yep. And once I got, I think probably... I'd already kind of made a decision at that time that it was like, ah, this, I don't feel like I want to be a working user anymore. Yeah, sort of just leaving, you know, yep. <laughs> stepping yep. away. And yep. obviously if you did want to get into the scene, it wouldn't be the probably the best move to just immediately just leave as soon as you graduated, no, which is when you're making your connections. <laughs> exactly right. So I did that. And when I got back from that, it's like, oh, what am I going to do? You know, two and a half years had passed since I left uni and I touched base with a few people and got a couple of gigs here and there, but I, I don't know, I just wasn't feeling it and it was hard to kind of get it going again. And I don't know, I've always found it a little bit hard networking and selling myself and, you know, that same kind of crippling um, 
self-esteem thing that a lot of musos go through where the highs and lows of having a lot of gigs or not enough gigs and then questioning why it is suddenly that you're not getting any gigs and it's like after a while it's just like oh I yeah. can't I can't live like this what did I and, say was it me yeah. <laughs> it's like <laughs> I can't I, put I myself I through this yeah. constantly yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. and I also for whatever reason wasn't really able to ever um, kind of resign myself to the the idea that oh well okay maybe music's going to be a part-time job for you and you'll have another job it's like no I just want one thing I want it to be all or nothing I want to be a drummer yep. or otherwise just let's just leave that yep. and maybe I can return to it for fun but I don't just want it to be like part-time yep. I don't know why that is but that's how I felt about it yep so I just sort of yeah returning from this trip got into just doing nothing kind of part-time jobs and then one of the part-time jobs I had was delivering stock feeds, like hay and stuff for horses out in the Hills District where there's a lot of big dressage studs. And I did that for quite a few years. And um, anyway, one day I, I damaged my, uh, I got a slipped disc in my back and had to quit that job. And there was quite a few months where I was just not really doing very much because I couldn't really stand up properly or lift yeah, anything. <laughs> I knew I couldn't go back to that job. I mean, in hindsight, it was a perfect sort of push out the door because that's yeah. not a, it's not a career being they're delivering hay as lovely as a job as it was. Yeah. Um, and that was where it all sort of started. So right. as I started to get better and I had this shed which you went to out in Dural. Yep. Um, I started to think, well, what could I actually do here? And I, as I was telling you before, I had tinkered around with a lot of repairs and been restoring my own stuff in the background for quite a few years and starting with that kit that I bought off Toby, Alan Turnbull's yep. old kit. Yep. And other bits and pieces as well, you know, stuff that I'd bought off eBay, American stuff and whatever. So I sort of thought about maybe just giving it a bit of a go and, um, you know, adding to my skills a bit more and taking what I already had learned and what I already did know and seeing I, I, I can't really remember again thinking oh this is what I'm gonna be like I'm gonna yeah, yeah, yeah. be the guy that t- so does there was no epiphany it. it was just there was no real of, epiphany it was just like a, it's just it's a bit we of a case of like just give it a bit of a go give it a know? shot that yeah. classic That's sort a, of Australian kind of yeah yeah yeah, yeah <laughs> pretty lazy approach to it in a way it's just yeah. like oh maybe this might be for me I don't know let's yeah. see yeah <laughs> so I just started doing it and I, I can kind of remember those sort of early jobs I got and a couple of people that who are still my friends and customers to us today that um sort of said oh you you know i've seen the stuff you do with on that other kid or whatever you know maybe i'll send you my yamahas to um restore or whatever and then yeah. you know there was a few jobs like that and yeah. then i started posting them on social media and yeah. then yeah it just built but from there pretty built. quickly yeah, yeah yeah so what do you remember what your first um invoice number one do you I, that? I absolutely do because yeah. the first um the first job I did, and I always remind remind him of this whenever I see him, was for um, a drummer called Andy Horvath, who still plays heaps around town. I went to I went to uni with Andy, but um, he's yeah busy busy um, touring and session drummer, mm-hmm. um, and he had an old eighty set of Yamaha, I think it's the seven thousand series with these real sort of triangular lugs, and I don't know how he acquired them, but they were. They were pretty messy looking and he wanted them rewrapped and he wanted it to be his working kit and it's still one of his working kits now. So yeah, that was right. like the first big job I did was rewrapping this kit for him. Right. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty sure he was invoice number one. That was the first proper job anyway, you know. Yeah. I mean, There's probably a few things before that that were just like, oh, I'll fix this guy's yeah, yeah. broken screw or something. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. that was the real, the beginning of it then. Yeah. And that was the thing that sort of went around town and people saw that kid and some more jobs definitely came out of that. And right. they probably still do. He's still using this kid all the time. Right, like, right, know? yeah. Um, so, yeah, and that was early 2012. 2012, yeah. 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 I'm just trying to think when I got... It wouldn't have been too long after that because I think I was in Dural for 
2000 and I moved up here to Currajong end of 2014 was, uh, yeah only three years I was at Dural oh right okay yeah so much yeah 2013 maybe you yeah, came out yeah 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 and I'm just I'm just trying to think I think I saw a photo it might have been oh, I was Steve Marin Steve Marin posted something about a snare drum yeah Steve came here. out to that probably yeah as yeah well. yeah and Steve Marin left his left his wedding ring at my property, and he, um, <laughs> yeah, he went home, and then I can't remember how far he got down the road, but like he went home, and then I went out to the workshop, and there was this ring just sitting on the table. And but when he came back, he was like in a real like a bit of a panic. About it. <laughs> it's like it's okay, the ring's yeah, yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, that that was it. That that's when I found out about you. Oh, the okay. Drums, the snare drum, and and then I was like, oh man, yeah, I, I need. Because I, at the time, I, well, I've still got that kit, the Masters, Pearl Masters set. Yeah, yeah. And it had the rack times off the stands. Yep. I never liked, never liked it, that idea. I'd always had kits before with the, with the tom mounts. You know? I, I agree, yeah. yeah. I prefer the traditional yeah. sort of mounting as well. Yeah, and I just, oh, and then I yeah, made contact, was on Facebook or something. And... Yeah, well, I mean, that's sort of, I mean, it's it surprised me the way things took off with it. And I think that... Um, I think like th- that was all new to me as well, sort of running a social media yeah. um, page and having to sort of promote yourself and like and as I was sort of mentioning before, when I was trying to be a muso, I really was pretty shit at that. Like I just and I think it was a bit of a lack of confidence in a way. It's like oh, I didn't re- completely believe in what I was selling people when I was like oh you know like trying to get myself a gig or whatever. Yeah. But I don't know. I also maybe just didn't really know the way to go about it, but. For whatever reason, it just everything just fell into place with this, and yep. I, I just sort of I think I had a bit of a knack for the social media and kind of yeah, well, built abs- that pretty absolutely. well. Absolutely, I think it's very um, it's it's, it's kooky and wacky what you write. It's it's makes oh, you thanks, go, it makes you go. No, that, that's a compliment too. Yeah, it makes you go, man. That's that's in the photo and the smile and the face. Well, and the the photos as well. Like it's that that's the that's the easy side of it. Every yeah. day there's something good you can put yeah. up, and you know, social media like Instagram yeah. and Facebook, you've got to have a good photo. Yeah, you know? and it's like it's the sort of work that's like yeah. yeah, you've always got things to show. So my favorite is the photo of it's the selfie, but in the reflection of the the pearl, the pearl. Uh, oh, shiny the, head. The, the chrome head. The chrome head is brilliant. I think it's great. You're going. Like, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, look, I mean, and you have to kind of. This is the thing. Like, I talk to people about this sort of stuff a lot. I mean, I don't consider myself some, like, hugely successful social media um, guy or something, but I think, like, I have sort of. It's a, it's definitely a cornerstone of, of the, the way the business sort of works. Is you, ha- you have to be good at that. You can't just be good at your that's job. That's yeah. I, I like to think I'm good at my job as well, but it can't only be that. You've got to find a way to market yourself. And Absolutely. There's, I mean, there's heaps of room for improvement. There's plenty of things I don't do on social media that I talk to other people that run small businesses and they tell me about the advertising campaigns they do, and I'm like, oh, I haven't got my head around that at yeah. all. Yeah. Yeah. Someday I'll probably get there, but yeah. like, yeah, the things you were just touching on, like, yeah, you have to find a way of sort of, you know, bring a little bit of humor or a bit of wit into things because yeah. people don't just want to read your boring, like, this is what yeah. I did at work today. They want, you've got to give people a reason to engage. Absolutely. Um, and that has to be either you're teaching them something, yep. you know, you're giving them some insight into whether it's like a bit of history about the drums that they might want to learn yep. or, or the actual process of how you're fixing it. Yep. Um, uh, or just something funny that people want to arrange. Yeah, like it ha- yeah. has to kind of tick one of those boxes, I think. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. what's the point? You know, why would people be interested? That's You're right. just talking to yourself otherwise. Yeah, I think you do well. And you don't hit the mark every time. But, <laughs> but uh, <you> know. <laughs> some days, some of the jobs, you know, it's not like they're, they're not particularly photogenic or interesting to talk about. But 
there's usually something every week that's like, yeah, it's it's quirky or it's interesting yeah. or it's old or yeah, or there's some there's a personality attached to it as well. Absolutely. You know, might have belonged to someone interesting or something like that. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, who was who was the first? Um, uh, how do I say? It? Big big name drummer that came to you. Um, I think. Um, I'm not. I'm not completely sure, but I, I know that I did start doing some stuff for John Farris um, from Inexcess. Pretty. I was. I was definitely doing stuff for him at Dural. Okay. So that was in the first couple of years. Yep. And I think that John was. Um, he the stuff I did for him then was to do with the Gator case saga. You know the Gator drum cases yeah, released all that corrosive and, yeah. blue, uh, the fumes and. Yeah, oh, so, so he had all his drums in those cases, did he? He did, and um, but he only thought it was one kit at that time. It's kind of a long story, but anyway, there was there was an old um, uh, mid sixties Ludwig set that he had that got damaged in some Gator cases, so that came out to the workshop as well as a Tom off um, his his original. Like if you look at those early eighties in excess clips. Yeah, like from um, "Don't Change" and these kind of you know the first kind of first couple of albums or whatever. He's using like a blonde natural maple pearl yep. set. Yep. And our, there was a tom off that, just one tom that was affected. So we had to get some parts and stuff for that. And um, but that was pretty cool. Like the the little kit was cool, but he never used that within excess. But the the blonde pearl kit, I was like, wow, this is history. Like that drum, that drum was in your workshop when I came out there the first time. Oh really? Because I went I went home and I told my wife. Yeah. I just touched one of John Farrell's drums. <laughs> I remember it now. <laughs> you remember it, and right? She yeah, went, yeah. You're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is a perfect yeah. reaction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's cool. And and you've also done um uh, uh was it last year or the year before Midnight Oil? Yeah, so last year, um uh, last year, yep. So they've been um with yeah, with Rob, similar to with John, there's been there's you know, I, I hear from, like all of my customers, I hear from them every now and then when there's things going on. So I don't know when the first time was I did something for Rob, but last year there was a lot of stuff for Rob because of the lead up to the tour. The tour, yeah. Um, so, and that was great because it was his whole, um, again, like I really have respect for these drummers that have had these long successful careers, but they just don't really give a shit about endorsement deals or just yep. flying the fa- flag for some yep. brand. Yep. Um, and Rob is very much like that. He's right. just like, he's got the stuff he likes. And that's it. And most of what he used on the recent tour, I think really all of it actually, is stuff that he was using back in the day with, with Midnight Oil. Like the, the, the main part of the kit, it's not even one brand. It's a, it's a premier bass drum, black premier bass drum with Ludwig Toms. And that's what, like, if you watch the Oils on the Water um, yep. gig and even earlier stuff than that, yeah, he's using that all the time. That's all the time, yeah. 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 And that's what he just, they just toured the world with that. Right. Um, and, you know, the water tank and stuff that yeah, they yeah. found out in the Simpson Desert or something. Yeah. It's like all of this stuff is the original thing. Even the rack system that holds all the toms, it's like a fully custom-made rack. Oh, right, they, okay. His, his roadie's welded up and he's still <laughs> using that. So all this stuff got dug out and had to be repaired. And I believe even a lot of the um, the mixes and I don't know what they are, but, you know, the, the stuff that Jim Magini and stuff's using for his guitar and a lot of the sort of sound effects and stuff that they have, that was all original gear from the 80s as well. Right. They were digging all this stuff out and getting it rewired and repaired. And, That's but cool, yeah, so there was a lot of work on the 
it's so cool. Like there's just so much history attached to that. And like every drum that I was working on, it's like, oh, I've, this is in that film clip. Or you can see it in yeah. this gig. It's like this, think of all the stuff that's been done on this. You know? awesome. The recordings and the, the tours that this has done. And he's yep. still happy with it. Like, let's take that one, you know? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, there was quite a bit of stuff to do on that. And that premier bass drum, which like he'd done nearly everyone, every Minot all gig on ever. Mm-hmm. Um, that had some cracks and a few things that needed to be fixed. There was a lot of things, but it was all sort of little things little here things, and there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, that, that went on sort of back and forth for a few months. There was more things getting dug up and fixed and then decisions yep. about, oh, actually, we're going to take this drum as well and it would be another old thing that <laughs> like something from the 60s that he'd been using since the 80s, you know, yeah. like there was yeah. heaps of that kind of stuff. Yeah. And um, yeah, and he's just like such a pleasure to work for. I mean, the vast majority of my customers are a pleasure to work for. But yeah, once again, I just have huge respect for these these guys that are really like, they're right up there on the top of the pile. Like they're the most revered drummers in Australia. But yep. when you are working with them one-on-one or you have to talk about jobs and stuff with them, it's just like, they're so... Good dudes. They're good dudes and they're enthusiastic about, obviously, music. We, we all know that. But enthusiastic about gear, but in, a, in the way that I really like to see. It's not yep. about like the latest, greatest thing. It's you. like this kit I did so much on and I would not travel with anything else yeah and Rob famously has a stick bag as well that he's I hope I'm getting this story right because this hasn't been told to me by him but somebody else told me but it's a stick bag that he's I think used pretty much from the beginning and it's it's completely fallen to bits like it's held together by gaff tape and stuff but he takes that on every single gig like he's got that there with his sticks and he doesn't use anything else it's like there's something special about that yeah, you know like it's it's cool. been there from the beginning that's cool i love that stuff yeah <laughs> yeah yeah and when did um when did you uh start making the the hide heads kangaroo hide heads so the roo heads i started I th- that was pretty early on but it would have been yeah. in the first year of the business but i think um the the first heads I made were more out of, I mean, like a lot of things that were sort of born of necessity. And the, the reason was that I had a few jobs come in that were odd sized drums that people couldn't get heads for. Right. Okay. I had to make something. Okay. And I had heard about people using Ruhide for drums before and some Irish drummers were using them for Bowerins. And like, it was, I definitely wasn't the first person to ever use Ru skin on a drum. Yep. Um, so I, had heard about it and I sort of got into it and got my hands on some some Ruhide and did these odd sizes. And then once I'd done that a few times, I thought, you know, these Ruheads are working pretty well. Maybe I'll see if I can just make some standard sizes as well and see if there's a market for it. And I made some 14s and yeah, people were interested. And mm. in those early days I was making them, I was lapping them, you know, it's the, the, the term for the tucking process. Yep. I was lapping them to wooden flesh hoops, um, which were like a, a steam bent piece of maple mm-hmm. um, but the supply chain for that was difficult and also the, the wooden hoops they're just not as durable as a metal one you know they sort of bow a little bit and yep. so those first couple of years it was that the head sounded great but it was just a little bit hard to make them sort yeah. of like a shop ready product that was reliable and then I, I eventually um, got myself a, the equipment to manufacture metal hoops rolling rolling my own metal hoops out of aluminium which is what i use now and it's just the best because you can can do it all in-house i don't have to rely on any supply chain there and um i can make any size anything at all so i've got everything now standardized from eight inch up to 28 yeah um as well as all those pre-international premier sizes like i just keep those premier sizes as standard yeah and they're the same prices yeah like a 16 and 5 16 same price as a 16 just keep it 
yep. accessible for everyone. Cool. And it, but anyone that has a weird size in between that, I can make that as well. That's you know? cool. Yeah. yeah. I saw some photos of your website of some some odd looking strange drums. Yeah, those, well, that's the other thing. It's, yeah. it's I make a lot, obviously, for drum kit in standard and odd sizes, but I get all sorts of percussion. weird things as well, yeah, yeah. percussion things as yeah, well, yeah. like huikas and um, uh, yeah, bongos and um, I forget the name of it, uh, changu, it's a Korean drum. Yep. It's like an hourglass-shaped Korean drum. I did right. one of those for Synergy. So a lot of a lot of different weird things, tambourines, bowerins. Yep. Um, it's just such a good-sounding animal skin, and mm. it's much, much more durable than any other animal skin. Yep. And... The most important thing to me is the the ethical um, way it's sourced and yep. how it comes about. You know, it's a byproduct of a culling program, so yep. it it ticks a lot of boxes for me there. Cool. Um, so that's yeah, that's sort of how it started. Was just doing these odd sizes because people needed had these drums that they couldn't get heads for. Um, but yeah, once I started moving on to the standard sizes and people were sort of hungry for those, then I thought, okay, I need to actually make this into something that's a sort of um, refined product and yeah, the metal hoops were the next thing, but then also figuring out a way to vacuum package these so they could be sent to the other side of the world to different weather conditions and right. this kind of stuff and sit on a shop shelf and yeah, right. start wholesaling them to shops and, and that kind of stuff, yeah. Yeah. And how did Charlie Watts get these high, these rue heads? Well, so... How did that happen? Yeah, so I was contacted in, um, I don't know what year it was, but it was... I think it was that period you and I were talking about before when I briefly had a workshop in Glenorie. Yep. Um, it was it was definitely around that time, so it might have been two thousand and fourteen, I think. Um, and Charlie's Charlie's tech, um, Charlie's drum tech Don, he he contacted me. He made touch base with me on Facebook, I think, so, or maybe email, and said, "Hey, this is who I am." and um, I'm interested in some of these heads and we had this sort of conversation a bit of a dialogue and then eventually it was clear that there was some interest from Charlie Watts in them as well and um, how does that make you feel can I ask oh because it's like the best thing ever really. yeah because I mean, you're saying who, early on that, who that, wouldn't like that no yeah but because, especially because that was some of your early music influence. well this is the stones were like yeah I was just yeah I told this story to someone recently it's like I mean you know, it sounds like a fanciful kind of, like sort of a story to hear in a movie or something for somebody to sort of have this revisionist way of looking at things. But it really was like this. It's like when I was a teenager, like me and my best mate, who was a guitarist, he was also just into this kind of music. We would just spend our weekends like just, we didn't have a band. It was just him on guitar and me on drums. And he had this gold Les Paul that was just like the one Brian Jones used in like the early Stones. And, and nobody knew that except me and him, but it yeah. was like, yeah, this is just like Brian Jones one. And I'd be like, yeah, it really is. <laughs> We're the only ones that cared. And we would just like spend the weekends just jamming on like playing Get Off My Cloud or the Easy Stones songs, you know, yeah. ones that you could just like rock out to. And like we'd do that for a bit and then we'd watch the, the 25 by five documentary. It was like a, the first Stones documentary that was made obviously after 25 years. Yeah. And we would just watch that like all the time. And, um, yeah, so they were like our heroes, you yeah. know, yeah. that was the first band that I was a massive fan of. And I had like, you know, all my school books were covered in stones pictures and yeah, I had yeah. like, I would borrow this book from the library and give it to my dad to take to work. And I'd, I'd have flagged certain pages for him to photocopy. Like these, <laughs> these are the particular photos that I need to put on my school books. And then these really like, you know, crappy looking photocopies. That's what my school books were covered in. Like they weren't color pictures or anything. 
So that's what it was like. And yeah, then, you know, going on that's some... That's real fanboy shit. That's that really hardcore <laughs> fanboy shit. <laughs> that, that, I was that, in a dark, dark place for a no, long no, time. No, no, that was... A, that's bloody cool. That's really cool. So yeah, I think I think we've I've made it pretty clear. I was fucking obsessed with the Stones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah, and obviously coming some couple of decades into the future, I then it was like all of a sudden this guy's going to be my customer. It was just yeah, crazy. Yeah. And and coming from from them as well to you, not chasing them. As yeah, well. exactly. And I mean, this is the one of the real. It's it's the real um, beauty of the, the time that we live in with social media is that you you can sort of end up on people's periphery a bit more easily than in the old days where it would have been like hey even just approaching shops you know like yep. in the old days you would have had to step in there and be like hey this is who I am this is what I do you're going in cold you know yeah and that doesn't always go down well because they're like well maybe you are great at your job but I've never met you before so that's right whatever yeah. now it's sort of like you're not really going in cold because people are like oh yeah I'm vaguely aware of that thing that you're yeah, doing yeah. I've seen your work or something like that it's, it makes it so much easier like, yeah yeah. I've got no idea what it would have been like doing this job 30 years ago yeah um, so yeah you're right it, it was like that they approached me which is nice and um, or, or Charlie's tech did Don mm. and um, that was that was they were on tour and the, the plan was that I was going to meet up in Sydney and hand over the heads and stuff but that was the tour where I don't know if you remember this but they ended up having to bail when they were oh, in Perth mixed, because of mixed well, partner yeah. Um, yeah when she died and um, so they bailed and th those heads I think I made at that time got posted over somewhere and mm -hmm. but then when they came back on the next tour they just ordered a whole another set of heads so <laughs> oh, wow. so great. and then that was the time that we all um, yeah I got to meet them yeah. and um, go to the show and oh, you, you got to meet all of them I did get to meet all of them but yeah. went went to backstage and went to Charlie's dressing room and I mean that was a, a surreal sort of experience in itself because yeah, and much like I was saying before about guys like Rob Hurst and John Farris and you know it's he's a pretty humble guy I mean I don't know that all of Rolling Stones are like that but Charlie Watts absolutely is he's yeah, just yeah. like yeah. he's he's again he's just so yeah. into vintage gear and he's into yeah. all the history of jazz that's what he loves yeah that's it. and he has a really similar attitude towards drums to to what Rob Hurst does where it's like he's just not interested in any endorsement stuff he's got this old Gretsch kit I mean everybody knows this about him but he's got this Gretsch kit that he's been using since I think sometime in the 80s and that kit was acquired when they were doing a session in some studio in LA they were recording something in LA and they liked those drums, so they just bought them. But they also bought a Fender amp that Keith still uses. And that, oh. at the Sydney show, that was on stage as well. And it still has a stencil on the back of it from the studio that oh, they man. bought. So that, that amp and that kit were like bought basically on the same day. Right. They're both like old, old kits. Yeah. It's an old round badge Gretsch. Yeah. Um, and that's what he uses. And it's full of extra holes. And it's like, I don't know if it was wrapped at some point, but the finish is all damaged and... It's just like a real bits and pieces. He's got an old speaking pedal, Roger's hi-hat. Yeah, yeah. has like six speaking pedals off the side of the stage in case something goes wrong with five of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, really, it's not even an exaggeration. Don yeah, no, has to keep six pedals up to speed. And I, I had to take him some speaking parts because they were missing some bits and pieces. And Anyway, so meeting him was just fantastic because he really is just, he just wants to talk about very normal kind of subjects, horses and drums and these kinds of things. Yeah. <laughs> Now, unfortunately, I knew a bit about horses as well because of my previous job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and where he buys his horses from in Dural is right in my was in my delivery area. You know, it's yeah. like this bizarre kind of thing. So yeah, so I met him and we met we met um, Ronnie Wood and Mick Taylor as well, who sort of just strolled into the dressing room because they were just you know 
had not not much going on. Like, yeah, oh, what's yeah. going on? Let's see who Charlie's chatting to. Oh, yeah. Just, it was just like a normal sort of hangout. You know, yeah, it was really nice. Cool. Cool. Um, so, yeah, and he took a, a bunch of heads and Don took a bunch of heads as well for his own stuff because Don, Don, Charlie's tech, he's also a mad... Uh, he's a great restorer, but he's also a mad vintage drum buff. Um, most of his restoration work is restoring Charlie's extensive vintage collection because right. he's spent a lot of his... Um, time and money buying up famous jazz drummers kits he owns like oh, he right. owns like elvin jones kits and louis belson kits and really shit. and i don't know who else but a lot of old jazz drummers charlie owns some of their their um most sort of well-known kits mm. uh, and they're all in some big warehouse in london there's a rumor that they might he might open it up as a museum in yeah, future right. years because it's you know it's nothing really happening with it well, nick mason just did that too didn't he he, did he really? From Pink Floyd, yeah. yeah. He just, I think he sold off a whole lot of gear and then opened up a museum and all the rest of it because it all, was all just sitting in this barn. Just of his own, his Pink Floyd I, stuff. I, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. so cool. Or, or stuff that he's collected. You know? I, think, I think that's like, yeah, it's a great thing to do if, you're, yeah, if you have the money to be acquiring this stuff and that's what your passion is. Like, I don't know, it's a little bit unrewarding to have. I'm, I feel that even with some of the really nice things I have. It's like, oh, you don't just want that sitting in cases. You want people to come through and appreciate it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Um, especially if you really respect the the history and the stories behind it, which uh, absolutely, this you know the small interactions I've had with Charlie Watts, it's, it definitely seems like for him it really is about this this person owned this drum kit, this famous jazz drummer who I respect, yeah. who he respects, yeah. owned this kit and played on this kit, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That's the drummer from the Rolling Stones looking at yeah. <laughs> drum kits like yeah. that, you know. Yeah, that's cool. So yeah, I love that kind of attitude. Um, but yeah, that was a. That was a pretty crazy experience, but um, yeah, and I don't know what happened with the Rue heads that, that he took. They, I think they ended up on some vintage kit back in his collection, but yeah. 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 That's really cool. Um, now you went out to Nam. Yeah, so that was. The wit- uh, winter, winter, winter Nam, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah so yep. the, the American winter just gone, yep. January. Um, yeah, that was. That was a pretty cool experience. Sorry, you had, a, you had a stall there, didn't you? I had a stand there, but stand, I, was, sorry, yep. I was very lucky with that because, I mean, anybody who's done the NAMM show will tell you it's it's, it's not a cheap exercise to, to get over there, like, yep. um, especially you've got to travel from Australia for a start, but yep. just the, the costs associated with having a stall at NAMM are really, like, it's out of, the, out of the reach of a lot of small builders guys like me small products and stuff can you give us a figure of how much oh look i think even for i think even for the smallest kind of space it's like five or six thousand us for a a small booth yeah and then there's insurance and and, oh no nam's a long show actually oh right nam is um five five days four days okay um i can't even remember It's, it's definitely four days uh possibly possibly five so yeah but it it feels like that's a long time to have a show but as a as a business owner, it's actually great because it's like, you don't have to, you know, when we had these shows in Sydney, you've got one day and it's like, yeah, you yeah. can't even step out. Yeah, like, yeah. This is the space I get myself into anyway. It's like, I've got to be on all day because I have to just make the most of this. Yep. But with the five day NAM show, it's like, there's so much time to like, if you've got an interesting kind of client you're talking to or having a meeting with a shop owner or something, it's like, yeah, you can step out for a coffee or just step out for a coffee on your own for half an hour. You know, there's no, yeah. There's a bit more of a leisurely pace to it in a way, at least for me, I felt so. And that's how I approached it. And I took plenty of time to just walk around the hall and check out other stalls and yep. see what other builders were doing and meet people and, mm-hmm. and as well as having meetings with shops and stuff myself in my booth. Mm-hmm. But the, as I was just starting to say to you before, I was, I was really lucky with that because a good friend of mine, um, Eric Soy, who runs a company called Black Swamp Percussion in the States, 
They're a big um, percussion manufacturer. They make tambourines, wood blocks, and beautiful drums as well. Um, he's always been sort of, I guess you'd call it like a bit of a mentor figure for me. I don't really know why, but he just, yeah. <laughs> he's just sort of taken me under his wing in a way. And yeah, um, yeah when it sort of approached Nam, he was like, you should do Nam with us in our booth. And um, yeah, I mean, otherwise it would have been out of my reach um, at that time anyway. So mm. he gave me some space in his booth and some of the heads were on, all of the heads rather were set up on his drums. As obviously the advantage of making drum heads is it's quite a compatible or complementary product gotcha, to yeah. go with drums, you know, yeah. um, to go with other builders' drums. So yeah, that's, that's sort of how Nam happened. And um, yeah, that was great fun as well, sharing the space with him and the other Black Swamp guys for a few days and yep. getting, getting to meet just heaps of these industry people that, you know, the way it is now with social media, it's like you feel like you know so many people that you just had this relationship with for a long time. Yeah. I mean, it happens even in your own city. Yeah, that's But right. like there's so many people I know kind of in the States um, that are just part of this community and I was meeting them for the first time at NAM after f four or five years of dealing with them or talking with them or having some friendship with them, Eric included. You know, I'd never met him before. Right. So that was, yeah, socially there was a real a real nice thing about being at NAM as well as the sort of business opportunities that are there. Mm -hmm. But it's a, it's a crazy show. It's, yeah, there's, there's yeah. nothing like that here. It's yeah, massive. Loud, eh? Loud. <laughs> it's loud, yeah. yeah. It, I mean, it is easy to escape the noise. The, the loud areas are sort of in, just in certain parts of the, the halls and it's split over such a massive convention center. Okay. Have you ever been? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool to check out, but um, yeah, it is quite overwhelming as well. Yeah. Yeah. Now what, um, I kind of preempted this question earlier on, so it gives you a little bit of time to think about it. Mm. But what's the strangest request you've ever had, be it a build or a repair or a... I think, um, yeah, well, look, I think as far as builds go, one of my things from the very beginning has been that, because well, people have had said to me in the early days, like, oh, why don't you get into, um, oh, are you going to get into building drums? Are you going to build some snare drums? And I sort of said, oh... No, I don't think so, because there's enough other guys doing that. And also, it's a whole different area of study and expertise and skills required to do that, which I, I don't have. Like, I have a lot of skills, obviously, for this yep. job, but yep. building drums, that's a, that's a different thing. And um, so, no, I'm not really interested in doing that. But what I have started to become interested in is sort of just finding those gaps and just filling the, the holes where the, other, the builders aren't really doing them, you know. So if somebody wants kind of a custom tambourine or I've made yeah. a few slit drums for the symphony orchestra and bits and pieces like this, you know, I've done, I'm making some drums for the Navy at the moment, but they're rope tension drums yeah. and none of the drum builders wanted to touch that. So yeah, the yeah. Navy sort of came to me and they're like, Hey, we've seen that you restore rope drums and you know about, you know, it's, it's not like rocket science or anything, but there is a bit of, um, uh, there's things you have to learn by experience on how rope drums go together and the best way to do it and all of that. And, right. I had that experience, so I thought, well, I've restored them enough times, I can probably start making them and yeah, you know, awesome. getting the components together to put these drums together. But I think the strangest, the two strange requests I've had, one's a build and one was a restoration job. And the build was only just a couple of months ago, and that was this thing called a pogo cello, which is, um, it's like an American version of a lagerphone. Like, you remember the lagerphone, like the beer, beer tops on yeah. a stick that you, like in a folk band, you bounce it up and down? Yeah. And that was for um, Rebecca Lagos, who's the um, principal percussionist for the symphony, for Sydney Symphony. And she's a reliable source of weird requests because they'll get a score for some music that they've got to do and she'll, you know, she's the principal, so she'll read over it, like, oh, make sure we've got all the instruments we need. And they have a huge storeroom in yep. the opera house of all, so much percussion.
discussion and stuff like you wouldn't believe. Right. But if there's something there they don't have, well, the score requires it, so we need to get it. Um, so she'll often ask me, oh, is this something you reckon you could make? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's been other strange things from her in the past, but the pogo cello was the strangest, and it was like, it's basically just like a giant stick with like a spring on it and a saucepan on it and bells and <laughs> bells and a, um, all sorts of bits of percussion hanging off it. And then on the bottom of it is like a rubber bouncy ball so that when you're playing it, the whole thing can bounce, bounce up, and, up down. and down. Yeah, and they needed this for the Mary Poppins. You know, they do these things where they play the score and the movie's playing on a big screen yeah, behind yeah. them. They do Star Wars and stuff like that. So they were doing the Mary Poppins one and there was like, yeah, one song where they needed this pogo cello and she had to play it. And I went and saw it. It was pretty funny. It was, like it was bouncing real good. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> so that was the strangest build that I ever did. Yeah. And the strangest restoration job that comes to mind anyway was this. Um, it was like, it was a Hitler Youth snare drum that someone and they left it at the drum shop in Enmore. So I didn't get to meet the guy, but the <laughs> demo at the co-op was like he was he was so sort of strange about it. He was like, look, this guy has left a Nazi drum. I don't think he's a neo-Nazi, but he has left a Hitler Youth snare drum here for you to restore. What do you want to do about it? And from a historical what perspective... What do you want to do about it? Like, <laughs> what do you want to do? Just please don't make me yeah, call yeah, this guy. Yeah. But here's his phone number. And um, from a from a, a, the point of view of the history of it, I'm straight away like, oh, would love nothing more than to get my hands on this and work on this it's like you know the, think of the period of time that this comes from and what this has been involved in however negative a connotation is attached to that you know yep. that's beside the point but then the other thing that concerned me is that yeah like what's actually happening when I've restored this drum is this just <laughs> is this going to a museum or is this going back to some some far right guys yep awful use man a, cave full of use it in a march yeah yeah what's, what's it's it gonna being be a video used? of it a close up yeah so I, ha I ended up calling this guy and it was like, uh, it was a bit of an awkward conversation to begin with, but he was just like the most lovely guy. And he's like, no, no, no. He's like, oh, I, I expect that you'd probably call me and ask me this question. <laughs> but it was totally fine. He's like, no, nah, no, nah, just into interesting. He's like, I'm into just military memorabilia in general. He's like, but yeah, I've got heaps of stuff. I don't just have like um, Nazi stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was like, oh, okay, yeah, fine. Um, just had to check. <laughs> just had to check if you're a Nazi. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I restored it and he was happy and I enjoyed it and yeah. Great. Yeah. The one thing I've always wondered, um, is your business seasonal being when it's winter and it's cold and it's damp, are you getting a lot of drums that are, you know, sort of holding moisture or when it's hot, oh. are you getting drums that warp? It's not, I think business isn't seasonal in that way. Every year... I try to figure out if there's some pattern to things okay. and I don't know that I've really figured it out. But I think one thing for sure is that the time of year we're coming into now is when definitely Australian musicians, things are, Australian musicians that are working locally, things are starting to pick up quite a bit because it's the beginning of festival season, yep, yep. Um, corporate season, wedding season. Okay, yep. Um, so there's the urgent repairs start to come in a bit more now things that are like oh this isn't working and i need it going yeah big restoration jobs that's kind of that's, that's all year round yeah, it's all thing. year round it comes and goes yep but the, the working gear um there's a lot more of that at this time of year yep. um and obviously the the busy muses that go over into the european 
summer and do the festivals over there. Well, I don't really hear from them when they're away. Okay. But um, so there is a bit of seasonality to it in that sense. But I think because I have things going on with international clients and I sell the rue heads to shops all over the world, it's like there's sort of fingers in a few different doors, feet in a few different doors. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I sort of try to balance it that way. But there is a bit of up and down. I think another thing is that around tax return time. Because musos, I think, what I figured out is that musicians generally, like, we're not a wealthy people. We're, <laughs> we're, pretty, we're pretty down there. Yeah. And um, when we get a bit of money, it's like, we just feel like millionaires. Yeah. And um, I think well, that's... There's two the sides t- of that. We've either got a little bit of money that we need to write off. Yeah. Well, that's, that's true as well. That's true. <laughs> and then we get that return. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's that, but um, when they when people get the return, it's often the time that they're like, "Great, I've got some money. Let's um, let's get that gear. Let's get everything sorted. Sorted, yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, look, I don't think it's that seasonal. And as, as far as okay. what you were describing about like drums being damaged in different ways at different times of year, yep, probably it is the case that more drum rap gets damaged in summertime. But it's okay. not really that those jobs come in at that time. It tends to be just when people open their cases somewhere down the track and go, oh, this isn't looking great. And yeah, do you know right. what I mean? It's yep. not like everybody turns up on 46 okay. degree day and goes, oh, help, all of our drums are melting all at the same time. <laughs> yeah. No. Um, but yeah, yeah. Cool. Now, um, you don't have to say if there is anything, but do you have sort of plans for the future? You've got things things in the pipeline, new products? Yeah, I definitely do. Awesome. And um, yeah, so one of them I'm, I'm sort of um, not completely disclosing at this stage, sure. but there, there absolutely is something new happening, um, which yeah, probably is going to start um, I'll probably launch in the in the new year. Awesome. Um, I had sort of hopes that I might get to that a little bit earlier, maybe in time for Christmas, but that's not going to be the case. Yep. But yeah, that's that's one thing. Yeah, I mean, this like we were talking about before. There's kind of two sides to what I what I do here. There's the the restoration work which is ongoing, and then there's these sort of yeah, a couple of little niche products. You know, like the rue heads and the yep. the drum waiter sort of drink holder things that I've and made. The and symbol earrings. The symbol earrings, my, which my I my wife loves their symbol earrings. <laughs> <laughs> there's the symbol earrings I'm just about to start making those again because yeah that's that's a Christmas time thing so I don't really bother with them during the rest of the year um, but Christmas time yeah I, I make up a lot of pairs of those they're, they're pretty popular yep. and I'll put them in a few shops as well probably okay. um, so yeah things like that they're sort of my staple products but I want to add to that but also there's a couple of things on the restoration front that you know I'm always trying to add to my skill set to just kind of expand a bit because I think one thing I've noticed, and I've definitely been that guy myself starting out, is that like, because I think on the whole, more people are into vintage gear now than let's say 10 years ago. Yep. Obviously the, the, the marker in time of what equals vintage gear is always shifting along. You know, now it's like 80s Japanese kits are pretty cool. Like, yeah. you know, but when you and I were kids, it's like, it's like who, no. who cares about that stuff? Yeah, like, right. Or even 10 years ago, it's yeah, like, yeah. not many people are getting into the 80s Thomas yeah. and stuff, but there's a whole, there's a whole group of guys that really are into that stuff. Well, now. I've got a 92 Pearl set that I'm hanging out to make vintage one day. Yeah, I think you're pushing it at the moment. Oh, no. <laughs> well, these, these things are a pile of shit. I actually thought of getting, I think I, I might've, sh- I've shown you some pictures. I wanted to get them oh, all yeah. cut down and, and then, Ended up buying a Breakbeats kit real cheap. Oh, the, the Quest, Quest, the Quest Love one. Yeah, they're yeah. cool. Yeah. Was, yeah, just cheap and does the trick. Yeah. yeah. No, they're definitely good value for money. Yeah. yeah. I think, um, yeah, with the restoration stuff, yep. I think because of that, that sort of new wave, if you like, of heaps of people getting into 
owning vintage gear. There's also been a bit of a rise of DIY repair, repairers, restorers, this kind of stuff. And yeah, everybody loves to get into it and plenty of people doing a good job and everything. But yep. there's a limit to the, the tasks that those guys um, can carry out yep. a lot of the time. And, you know, obviously some of the equipment that I've got here, like routers and grinders and sanding equipment and saws and things, this is like, yeah, it's machinery that you don't generally just have in your home, home workshop. Right. And there's skill and experience required to do tasks like cutting bearing edges. And, and so these your, are the sort of things that are... jigs and everything. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There are jigs and things you have to build. And everything to do with drums is, is working on a curve all the time. Like you can yep. see these things I've got hanging up on the wall here just designed for... When you're clamping something Those to get break, rid of a crack. shoes? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they do look like break shoes. So yeah. They're just radius calls. So they're just yep. curved wooden blocks that are cut to exactly the right curve to suit different diameter drums. And of course, there's lots of different diameters. So, yep. um, But I'm always having to do that, make sort of curved blocks and curve working on curves all the time, which is something obviously I'm pretty used to. But yep. that's the, the, the one thing above everything else that just is, always applies in this job. Everything is round. Yep. Um, but I'm always trying to expand that skill set and add yeah, some new products, but also just hone my restoration skills to just get them to that next level and, and be taking on things and repairing things that, you know, maybe previously people were like, oh, that's a write-off, that can't be done. But, you know, there are ways to repair voids in drum wrap or deep scratches, and these things actually can be done. There's just, there's a bit more work and yep. experience involved in it. And the yep. place to learn those things from is not from other drum repairers necessarily it's looking outside of that box yeah. and seeing what um you know antiques restorers do or people in the hot rod industry or gotcha. um, um people that re repair ceramics and stuff like that you know yeah. these are the places that i look to to get my yeah. information and yeah. um ideas about that um yeah just to expand my sort of broaden my knowledge mm -hmm. so i guess that's the other thing in the future for me as well i have ideas about some areas that i'd like to move into there to just make the impossible a little bit more possible with rare instruments that that really should be saved you know obviously not every drum that's damaged is worth uh, taking down that path yes yeah. it's, it's time and it's expensive sometimes to do that but there are going to be things where that is the case they're like a one of one or something yeah um, we were talking about John Farris before he had a lot of vintage he went through a bit of a phase where he was buying a lot of vintage Ludwig kits and it was, that was a crazy year. He was just like buying vintage Ludwig kits and getting them shipped straight to the workshop like over a period of months. And every few weeks I just had a Ludwig kit oh, turning really? up in a crate here. Like, was I mean, he bored, it wasn't unannounced. Bored, so he just so sits around and just buys drum kits? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. I think <laughs> he just... He'd, he'd just decided, I think it was something he'd always wanted was to just have a bit of a vintage collection. He didn't have a lot. He had heaps of Pearl drums, like all these in excess stuff, but he'd always wanted these Ludwig drums and he's a huge Beatles fan. You know, Ringo for him is like yep. what Charlie Watts was for me. It's like his childhood hero. He wanted yep. to have a Black Oyster Ludwig. And, yep. But in the course of that, he bought quite a few other Ludwigs and they were coming in and I was doing a lot of restoration on that. But the level of work I was doing that was quite above what I would generally do when I'm cleaning up. You know, like you can see that sky blue pearl Ludwig kit over there. Yeah. That's just going to get a standard kind of clean and polish, which will make it look amazing. But John wanted every scratch removed from the drum wrap and the oyster pearl had split in some parts as well. So you could see the mahogany underneath, you know, it had split along some of the lines in the, the oyster pattern. Um, so they were being colored and filled with epoxy and then and had you done flushed that? back. Have you done that stuff I, before? I'd definitely done it before, but n not on a, a job as big as that. I mean, this right. was, this was days working on just the bass drum, just right. filling and then scraping back and fine sanding and then yep. finally power buffing to get it to just blend 
power buffing. Power buffing. Fucking power buffing. <laughs> power buff the vintage Ludwig space drum. <laughs> but you know, with the power buffing, like you've got to be careful with that because yep. you're, you're polishing you're polishing acetate and plastic wraps and the, a little bit of heat it'll just warp yeah, yeah, so you yeah. want to sand it to almost perfect gotcha so then you're just touching it with the buffer and it's done kind of thing you know yep. you're barely buffing it at all gotcha. so there's a lot a lot of work of do, in doing that um but that's one example of sort of something that yeah it was just an area that i delved into that i hadn't seen that happening so much with other drum repairers and restorers that were still doing very fine work but those would generally be the kind of jobs where it was like, well, that's a write-off or that's, you can't, you can't solve that problem. It's not worth it or there's not a way kind of thing. But I had gotten into that, but yeah, you were asking before, had I done it before? I had, but it was like one little scratch on one drum or one little crack. And John's was like, he bought this kit that was just covered in cracks. I don't know (laughs) why he bought one that was so badly damaged, but when it was finished, it looked like it had just come off the showroom floor. That's great. And um, after we'd done four or five kits, I remember he he rented out a, a studio at Soundstage in Alexandria one day with um, him and Dan Strong, who's a Sydney local, <laughs> as his John's drum tech. And they were just setting up all the kits, trying different heads and cymbal combinations. He bought all these beautiful old um, Zildjian A's and stuff as well. So everything was like period correct. Yep. And he said, oh yeah, come down, check it out. We've got all the kits set up. So I went down there and it was ridiculous it was like mm. six five or six kits I can't remember there were all like six mid 60s or earlier Ludwig's there was a WFL kit as well 50s one and they just like yeah they just looked they just, beautiful yeah. they were all like brand new you know this was right. all the work I'd been doing over the course of a year but one kit at a time and then sending them yeah, off and there they were all set up together it was really cool yeah and he was happy and that was the that's the main thing yeah no that's really cool <laughs> yeah so still um you keep doing what you're doing, man. Thanks, you know, mate. In, a, in a, such a throwaway society that we're in, yeah. it's good to see you, you know, bringing back the old stuff. and. Yeah, I think so. And I, I Making think, old new again. Yeah, for me, for me that's that's the, the underlying thing that sort of drives me the most, I think, is just like, yeah, like these these uh, historical artifacts, obviously I'm not only working on vintage drums here, that's, that's maybe not even half of what I do, but yep. the vintage stuff, it's like, yeah, I want to see that stuff survive. And the, the stories and the the knowledge of the, the period of time that this stuff has lived through is like important to me. I think that's about awesome. that stuff. Yeah, you know? yeah. I had a drum here um, just a few months ago that was made in 1890. It was an old French brass snare drum. And it was like, just thinking, I, I mean, look, I work here by myself all day, so I have a lot of time to just live in my own head, <laughs> ruminating on these kind of things. But yeah. I was just thinking to myself one day, like, there's no one on earth today that was alive when this drum was made. Yeah, like, yeah. that's how old this is. And obviously there's plenty of things in the world that are that old or older, like, obviously. Yeah. But I don't know, it was just cool to be working on something like that. It's like, there's no one, no one in the world was around when this was made. And then thinking about, like, you know, when this drum was 50, like, like the Beatles hadn't even... Start. Yeah, right. Yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> they were still like fifteen years away from starting. I was going to things you, like that. I was going to ask earlier: Was have you ever had something on your bench, and that this maybe this was something like that? Yeah. Where you've gone, oh fuck! If I drop this, or or you just you got that confidence in you. No, no, no. I definitely, I definitely have had. Um, you know what I mean? Eh? You know what yeah, I'm absolutely, saying? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like you get, you know, when you go and grab it in your hands, <laughs> shake this before you get to it. You know. Fuck. 
<laughs> I don't know if I've had things, things like that that I was worried about the whole drum itself, like oh I can't like d drop this or whatever. But yep. there's definitely been certain tasks that I've had to do on certain drums oh, where it's yeah. like oh I just there's no second one, chance. I've got with one this. shot. At this. Yeah, I've got one shot exactly. Yep. It's like yep. I've got to do this cut just right or. Yep. Um, yeah, that kind of stuff definitely, and I think generally it's been that any sort of nervousness that I've had about that is usually more attached to like if it was working for one of my heroes or something that I was like, yep. oh, I can't believe like I've got a job from this guy. Like, yep, I think that's when that question first up. popped in my head. You know, when you you know working on that that kind of stuff. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm. But I think for the most part, I sort of yeah, I'm pretty confident in what I'm doing, and I think as well, I don't. I don't take on jobs, and from the beginning I've been like this, I've never taken on tasks where it's like, oh, I don't know how to do that, but I'll just I'll just experiment my way through it and figure it out on the job. Like, I've always done it on off cuts or my own drums or something right. first. Like, right. So I know when I've got the job here, it's like, yeah, I know a way to go about this. And if it is, and I do as well get jobs sometimes that I've never done this particular thing before it might just be something a little bit quirky or it's a type of drum that I've never worked on before some strange percussion instrument yeah yeah in those circumstances you don't have you don't have the opportunity to like go and get another weird Korean changu to you got to just do it on that one yeah gotcha. so yeah that, that that can be a little bit nerve-wracking sometimes but I think a lot of the the tasks involved with doing this there are some that's there are no second chances but there's also a whole bunch of other ones where it's like yeah it might take you a few goes to get this right but you can take a few guys. <laughs> so you, got, you got nerves of steel. The see, nerves of steel. You see what I did there? Oh, wow. We, we got right to the end of the but podcast. And <laughs> uh, all right, man. Steel Turkington, thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure, man. Thanks a lot. It's, so, it's great to be on your podcast. Thanks very nah, much. Sweet as man. And um, yeah, all the best for the future. Thank you very and, much. Um, yeah. Good luck, man. Thanks, mate. Cheers, bud.